Good morning, everyone. Good to see you all this morning. We are going to get started. Good to see you all. I missed you for the last two weeks. I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. Want to make a quick note, our, sur- our study will continue for another couple weeks, and then we will take off for Christmas and be back right after Epiphany. And those new schedules of the spring semester will be out next week. And so you'll get them over email. You'll also get the schedule on a new bookmark that you can throw into your Bible. And so just to make sure that we all know we'll be off for a few weeks at Christmas and then back together what I think is the 9th, January 9th. And so that's the Wednesday after Epiphany. I think that's when we're going to start back up again. But you'll get all of that in writing as well. A few just quick announcements. We are almost in Advent. This Sunday we begin Advent, and there are lots of ways that you can plug into Advent here at St. Michael. And so I want to encourage you to grab our newest Archangel, if you haven't yet. They're on stands around in the hallways, and look through the different opportunities. There's an Advent meditation um, day morning this coming weekend. There will be meditation books that will be available beginning this Sunday for daily meditations through Advent. We've got a number of different experiences. We are going to have two different services of lessons and carols this year that I want to make sure you know about and you can tell your friends about. The first is Advent lessons and carols, which basically means it's all of the prophetic scripture passages, but it's not the birth stories, right? So we are doing our Advent lessons and carols without the Christmas portion because it's not Christmas yet. And that's going to be this coming Sunday at 11 o'clock. So the regular 11 o'clock time and service is going to be a special Advent Lessons and Carols. Then the Sunday before Christmas, which this year happens to be the 23rd, but in future years it won't be quite so close to Christmas Day, we are going to have a Christmas Lessons and Carol service. And that's going to be an evening service with candlelight. We're inviting lots of leaders from around the city. We've got some, you know, leaders in politics, leaders in education, leaders in social work. And so they're going to come to be guest readers for that service. And that's going to be at the 530 on Sunday night. So the typical 530 service schedule. And that's the Christmas lessons and carols. For those of you who may be familiar with what King's College in Cambridge does every Christmas Eve, that's what we're going to be doing the Sunday before Christmas, where we actually get the full story all the way through the birth narrative. And so we'd love for you all. Invite your friends, yes. Sunday morning at 11 for Advent Lessons and Carols, we know that that's not the most convenient time to invite a friend, particularly if they go to another church. If they don't go to another church, definitely invite your friend because they need some Jesus, right? And it's Advent, and we can give them some. The Sunday before Christmas at 5.30 p.m. is a great opportunity for you to invite friends or neighbors who may go to other churches because it won't undermine their own Sunday worship, right? It's something in the evening, and it's going to be pretty, and you know it's dark. It's basically dark by 5.30 now, so it's going to feel so nice in the church for that kind of choral experience. And in both cases, our choir is going to be singing from the front of the church, which is really nice because although it's great to have them behind, it's even better to have them up front. And our church is very normal for churches built kind of in the early to mid 20th century where the choir is behind the congregation, which I'm sure at some point made sense. But I sure love it when I get to hear the choir in front of me and not just behind me. So it's going to be great, great. So I hope that you will mark both of those things down. But in addition, there are other things. So grab an archangel as you walk out or a resource guide, and make sure you mark those things down. Now we're going to open with a prayer, and before we get started, one of our very active members, Gloria Hawking, passed away last night. I thought you may not know. So Gloria had, about two weeks ago, was dealing with a cough that would not go away, and they went in and they discovered that she had stage four lung cancer. And was hospitalized for a bit, was released to go home with hospice about a week ago, which was, of course, over Thanksgiving holiday. And her family was able to be with her all of last week and have a really beautiful week. And we were able to pray with her yesterday and anoint her, and she passed away last night. And so I will tell you that Sam and the kids are amazing. I mean, there are, you know, as a priest, we get to see this regularly. 
there are families that you can tell if a family is really well formed if when they face this kind of moment there is a confidence of hope rather than only sadness and despair they were sad of course they are but they were sad with that hope and it was really beautiful and there i always hope for everyone that they can have a beautiful death and i think she did and so i know that's probably news to many of you um, and so i want to just include her in our prayers this morning as we open up our bible study so let us pray God, we ask your presence upon us as we approach your holy season of Advent. Open us up that your spirit may have space to fill us, and that as you fill us, your spirit will overflow through us in the world, giving people all around us the hope that this season brings. Today, we especially pray for those in our community who need your healing touch, especially Peggy and William, We pray for those that we hold in our hearts. And we also especially pray today for those who have gone on to life eternal, especially for Gloria. All this we ask in your holy name. Amen. So as I said, I missed you two weeks ago before Thanksgiving. We, you all looked with Mary Lesman at chapter 9. And so we're going to do a quick overview of how we've gotten to where we are in Acts. So as we know, Pentecost happened. It changed Jesus's disciples. They began to preach, and people like Peter and some of the early deacons like Stephen and then Philip were being successful in their preaching. But most of what we have seen up to now has been preaching addressed to the Jewish people. Others have heard it, and we notably have the story of the Ethiopian eunuch with Philip. But most of what has happened up to now has been targeting the Jewish people with the story of Jesus. In chapter 9, we see a very important moment in Saul's conversion. Saul is who we call Paul. There is never a moment when Saul's name is officially changed. We'll see in chapter 13 that he just starts to be called Paul. And so just know that Saul, who was converted in chapter 9, is the Paul that will travel all around and plant lots of churches. And he'll begin to be called Paul in a few chapters, in chapter 13. Now we come to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is a significant pivot for the story of the early apostles in the first century. As I said when we began Acts, Acts is, in essence, two parts. You've got part one of Acts, which is focused on Peter and the Jewish people in Jerusalem. Then you've got part two of Acts, which is really a shift toward Paul and the Gentiles ultimately ending in Rome. So you really have a Peter in Jerusalem shift to Paul and Rome. And that shift really begins in earnest in chapter 10. So in chapter 10, before we jump in, let's look at the structure of the chapter. The first thing we have in chapter 10 are two vision stories. Um, I said two and wrote two, sorry. One. We've got Peter and Cornelius having a vision. Then Peter goes to visit Cornelius And then the Spirit comes onto the Gentiles. That's the general structure. So we're going to start with the visions. But before we do that, we're going to have a little historic moment. Consider what Rome represented for these first century Jews. Rome was the leader in the entire Mediterranean world. Rome had, at that point, for a few centuries, been the most powerful empire in the sort of, when I say the known world, I want to acknowledge there were basically two kind of big empires at this time in the world. You had the Mediterranean empires, which we know began with the Greeks, 
then became the Romans, the Ottomans will come in and will kind of dissect again. And Egypt, of course, in ancient history was a big deal in that region. At the same time, what's going on over here in the Mediterranean, you've got China in the east. And so China has, for this entire period, been very strong in its own region. And it isn't for a while that we get meaningful trade happening between Europe and the Middle East and China. It will happen, and it has happened in small ways at this point, but it's too difficult to really make the trip back and forth at this point in our history. And so the known world for the people living in Judea is really the Mediterranean and what is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is in charge, and Judea over on the east is far from the center of that power. If we think geographically, Rome and North Africa are really the center of the empire. Over to the west, you've got areas like, you've got the Iberian Peninsula, you've got Spain and Portugal, and then you've kind of got a little bit of Britain over there, and you might have a little bit of Germany up there, but not really. They're not as consequential as they will be. And over to the east, you've got this kind of backwater that we call Judea that is really mostly helpful because it's a way to get from mainland Europe to North Africa, but on its own, not that important. And so Judea is a small impact on a big empire. As children of Judea, right, these Jews who would have grown up in what we would call Israel, they grew up hearing stories of the big, bad, scary Romans, all right? I want us to put ourselves in that kind of mindset because the Romans represented a power they could not control, a power that could hurt them or kill them, judge them for anything they want. Rome got what Rome wanted, and the people who lived in Israel had nothing to say about it. That is the world in which these disciples and apostles were raised. It's difficult for us to even put ourselves in that kind of mindset because even though the U.S. carries a very big stick in the world, it's nothing like what the reality of Rome would have been for the people of Judea, right? The U.S., even though it controls a lot, doesn't wield its authority quite so blatantly as Rome would have. So, that is all very important for us because we begin chapter 10 by hearing about a Roman soldier. If you think about the power of Rome, it was scary because their military was so strong. And so the power of Rome is most well represented in the soldiers. The people of Judea would have likely not seen any Romans who weren't soldiers. And so they represented everything about the empire. And as we begin chapter 10, we hear about a Roman soldier named Cornelius who has a vision from God. So if we look at chapter 10, verse 2, the first Roman we meet in Acts is this soldier. And we find out in verse 2, that he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? The angel answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon, who is called Peter. So let's put this into context. Cornelius, a Roman soldier, has in some way been experimenting with worship. So the Romans had a school of theology, so to speak, right? We know about Roman mythology. They certainly acknowledged higher powers, but for them, there were many different gods that represented or reflected the way that humans interact with one another. So if we go back into our Greek or Roman mythology, the shorthand of understanding their structure is that 
all of the emotions and personalities that they encountered in human culture, they then reflected in the stories of their gods. So worshiping gods is not unusual for Romans, but the style in which they would worship and the way they understood gods would not be the same way that the Jews or the people of the Middle East understood God. But something has happened with Cornelius. It's easy enough for us to assume that this soldier has been living in Judea and has been exposed to the Jewish way of being and has somehow become interested in this way of worship. This is very similar to what we saw with the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He comes out of a culture that is not Jewish, but in his experience and his traveling, he experienced Judaism and is kind of fascinated. Like something about it is bringing him in. Same thing is happening with Cornelius, except Cornelius has been worshiping in some explicit way. And so his vision from God is affirming whatever he has begun to work on on his own. And so Cornelius has this vision, and the angel says, go find Peter. Now at the same time, Peter is down in Joppa. I don't have my map here, but if you imagine Israel, where Cornelius is living is in the northeast coastal area of Israel in a place called Caesarea Maritima. So you heard Caesarea Philippi. This is the other Caesarea, Caesarea Maritima, and that would be where Pilate lived. That would be where the Roman governor of that whole region would live. And if you go to Caesarea Maritima now, you can see that it's kind of like a little Rome. They've got a circus where they would have entertainment. They've got amphitheaters where they could have plays and dramatic readings. They've got a big house right on the water where the governor of Judea would have lived. And they even have things like an ocean pool. I mean, you can literally see the footings of these houses. And it's a pool that goes out into the water. And I remember the first time I went there, I kind of looked at it and I thought, dang, I would live here. I mean, it's really pretty. And so this Caesarea Maritima would have been filled with Roman soldiers too, right? Because the governor would not live in a foreign land without the protection of the Roman army. And so Cornelius fits into this high-ranking battalion that would have been present in Judea taking care of the Roman governor. Does that all make sense? Joppa's not too far, but Joppa is more away from the coast where the Jewish people would have lived, not where the Romans would have lived in their land. And so while Cornelius has this vision, Peter's having another vision. And if we jump to verse 11, we'll see Peter's vision. Peter fell into a trance and says, he saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. This is a fantastic moment. And it sounds crazy, but it's really meaningful in the history of Christianity. Up to now, and especially with people like Peter, there's been the understanding that makes total sense. Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. You follow Jesus as the Messiah if you are Jewish. Makes total sense. Why would anyone who's not Jewish be interested in following the Jewish Messiah? Remember that in this period of time, every religion was based on cultural identity, racial identity, geographic identity. There was no religion that was universal or global. Every religion was grounded in who you are and who your people are. So for Peter, it was natural that he understood Jesus through his Jewish lens. This is the moment when God first clearly says, no, no, no. What Jesus did is now for everyone. Peter doesn't quite get that yet, 
But when he sees all of these animals come down in a sheet, and God says, kill and eat, Peter's immediate reaction is, wait a minute, I see some animals in there that I am not supposed to eat. We might wonder where that comes from, and so do you not need to turn to it? I want to read you a bit of Leviticus. <laughs> be prepared to be captivated. <clears throat> so you can make a little note in your books, Leviticus chapter 11 is really where we get a lot of the food laws that we might call kosher, right? Leviticus 11. Moses and Aaron spoke to God, and God said to them, from among all the land animals, these are the creatures that you may eat. Any animal that has divided hooves and is cleft-footed and chews the cud, such you may eat. But among those that chew the cud or have divided hooves, you shall not eat the following, the camel. For even though it chews the cud, it does not have a divided hoof. It is unclean. The rock badger. What is that? The rock badger. For even though it chews the cud and it does not have divided hooves, it is unclean for you. The hare. For even though it chews the cud, it does not have divided hooves. It is unclean for you. The pig. For even though it has divided hooves and it is cleft-footed, it does not chew the cud. And so it is unclean for you. Of their flesh you shall not eat, and on and on. And then it goes on to what you can eat, and it continues to explain this at great detail. That is the fundamental experience that will become kosher food laws. And for those of you who know Jews now who keep kosher, which isn't many, but the ones that do keep kosher, they have fully separate kitchens where you sort of have this side of the kitchen and that side of the kitchen, which includes separate refrigerators, separate ovens, separate cooking utensils, separate pans and pots and everything, because all of that has to be separated all the time. The idea of what you can and cannot eat is rooted very deeply in the Jewish identity. And Peter says in this moment, I've never eaten the unclean stuff. So for Peter, he's proud. He's really done the right thing. He has followed the law as it should be. And he's not going to break that now just because he's hallucinating and seeing some sheet full of animals. But it happens three times. And before Peter can actually begin to understand what has happened, the people that Cornelius has sent to find him arrive. So if we look at verse 19, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Peter, look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. That ends our first section. Now we're going to go into the section where Peter visits Cornelius. Before we move on, any questions or thoughts about these two visions? Great question. So the question is, does Cornelius need to be secretive about his faith? We don't, I, I, this is one of those answers where the real answer is we don't know, but probably not. Rome was sort of like Greece, very open to intellectual exercise. It, it was an intellectual tradition. But Rome gets off the rails later and becomes more uh, military and militant about how it operates. But at this point in time, Rome is still a, an intellectual exercise, right? We know that Rome has a history of being a republic where people were able to kind of be represented by people? Not really. I mean, Rome is far from perfect, but there is a sense that Rome appreciated the intellectual rigor of things like politics and philosophy and arts and culture and religion. And so a Roman citizen who is experimenting with and investigating other religious traditions would actually be sort of seen as intellectually interesting. Now, was Cornelius doing so just as an intellectual exercise? The story implies he was not. But he could have been perceived outside of his household as just being a well-rounded, interesting person. And so hiding his interest, 
almost certainly he would not have had to have hid his interest because he was simply branching out and learning about other cultures. And Rome really respected that. I saw you too, Karen. Right, what I think is brilliant about this scene, and I may have said this in here before, I know I've said it on Friday mornings, we are limited in writing because we assume if something comes before something else in words, that chronologically it came before that other thing too. That's not always the case. It's difficult, and certainly we see that in modern writers, but ancient writers, like the people who wrote these scriptures, were not quite as skilled at giving us these two things are happening at the same time in language. Now, Cornelius' people have traveled, which means it's not necessarily happening at the same time. But I think the story is richer if we understand that the work the Spirit is doing right now is in tandem, right? God is working on both Cornelius and on Peter at the same time for the same purposes. Excuse me. This is important because the end of this chapter is a unifying of the Jewish and Gentile lines. And Peter and Cornelius represent those Jewish and Gentile lines that will come together. And so from the very beginning, God is pushing on both of those individuals so that God can push those individuals together, that the culture comes together too. So I agree. It's, it's a fantastic story. Every chapter we do in here, I think, oh, that's a great chapter. And then I come in next week, I think, oh, that's a great chapter. I mean, Acts is just, it's fantastic. So Peter hears this, and he agrees, and he goes with the people Cornelius has sent. So Peter arrives at Cornelius's house, and we see in verse 25 what happens. On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and falling at his feet, worshiped him. But Peter made him get up saying, stand up, I am only a mortal. We see Cornelius's Roman identity coming out here. Cornelius has been raised up to worship, mm, I'm going to say worship idols. And what I mean by that is worshiping stuff. And that stuff could be a statue. That stuff could be a person. That stuff could be anybody. And for Cornelius, after this vision, Peter represents something amazing. And his immediate response is to worship Peter. But Peter certainly understands that is not what is supposed to be happening here. And so he says, get up, get up because I've got something good to tell you. When Peter arrived, they began to have a conversation, and Peter does what Peter does, reveal the story of Jesus to this Gentile. Now, in this moment, I have to think, Peter's kind of playing along, all right? He's not entirely sure what is happening right now, but he's seen a vision, he's trusting the vision, this man seems genuine, And so he's going to tell him the story of Jesus. I want to note two things. The first is easy. We know the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Who else knows that story? Maybe no one. Because what was the story? Philip's out there walking by himself, and he runs into the eunuch who is by himself in his chariot, and they ride along for a bit. They see some water. Philip baptizes the eunuch, and what happens? Philip vanishes. Where's Philip? Uh, We don't know. And does anyone know what Philip did with the eunuch? We have to assume probably not. Peter's in Joppa. That's a real far way away. I mean, that's Joppa to Gaza, which is where Philip was. You're looking at at least a week travel. So it's very, very likely Peter's doing this without knowing what has happened with the eunuch. I just want to make that quick note. The second note is a bit more significant. Remember what I said about Rome. Rome represented something scary. Not only would Peter have been raised with scary stories about Rome, embodied in Roman soldiers, but remember not too far back, Jesus was crucified 
by Rome. And here Peter is walking into the lion's den, so to speak. This man, who is probably responsible for the entire Roman army represented in this city to protect the Roman governor, has invited Peter into his home. Peter is vulnerable, seriously vulnerable, because he has no idea who this guy is. They have no history. He's just trusting the spirit. To not only see Cornelius's worship stance, but to then have the confidence to tell the story of Jesus to the guy who represents the group who just killed Jesus is pretty remarkable. I just want to note all of that. To us right now, it seems totally sensible. Peter has the opportunity to tell a Roman about Jesus. Of course he would. Not necessarily. This is much more interesting and much more significant than that. So if we look at verse 28, Peter said to them, so who are them? Them would be Cornelius and his household. So Cornelius is a big guy. Cornelius would have had a home, which most Roman soldiers would not have had, which is how we know that he's likely in charge of them. He would have had a staff, not only his own personal family, blood family, but he would have had a staff of people taking care of his home. So Peter says to them, everyone, you yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. Something has happened, and Peter has begun to make sense of his vision. God has made something clean. Peter cannot call it unclean. That includes people, not just animals. Cornelius tells Peter about his vision, and then if, as we jump forward to verse 34, Peter realizes that he's supposed to be telling them about Jesus. And so I want to read this little passage to you. It'll take a minute. But what I want you to note is that the emphasis for Peter has shifted from tying Jesus into Jewish prophetic tradition, which is what we saw Peter do first and what we've seen Peter do in front of the council, to something much more broad and inclusive. Peter began to speak to them. This is verse 34. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. You know the message he sent to the people of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ. We are witnesses to all that he did in both Judea and Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and allowed him to appear not to all the people, but to us who were chosen by God as witnesses. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God as judge of the living and the dead, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There was basically nothing in that about Jewish tradition or history. There was nothing in that about Messiah, right? Messiah as a word would not have made sense to Cornelius. What Peter does here is significant in that he pivots in the story so that it makes sense to someone who does not come out of the tradition. That is huge. Up to now, Peter, as representing all of those early disciples, would have understood, as I said, Jesus fulfills the Jewish messianic prophecy. Now Peter's understanding, Jesus might be here for a lot more than just the Jews. As the Spirit, and here's what's, here's what's, as if that's not big enough, we see in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. Holy, that is, that's remarkable. How have we understood today in our Episcopal tradition, the way the Spirit comes upon someone. It's through baptism. That is a very, very common Christian understanding. One hears the story, believes the story, prays to have Jesus become for them their Savior, 
And upon baptism, they received the Spirit. Wait a minute. While Peter was still talking, this Roman receives the Holy Spirit. That's huge. And we're going to talk about that in part three. Any questions or comments about the action that has come up to this point? Uh, the question is, would in that moment, in the pivot, Peter become a global evangelist? So I answer that question to say that Peter kind of never does. Peter is not that person. There you go. Okay. So Peter, Peter has represented the entire group up to now, basically. What we will see moving forward over the next few chapters is that the group, and when I say the group, I mean followers of Jesus, become more like Paul than they do like Peter. And Peter never really makes that transition. Peter's, Peter is, I don't want to, uh, a company man. I mean, Peter came up in the Jewish tradition, and although he intellectually understands that you don't have to be Jewish to follow Jesus, he never really likes that. And we're going to see in multiple examples throughout the rest of Acts, Peter has to kind of be reminded that everyone's okay to jump in. And when he's reminded, he says, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, that's, that's Peter's general reaction is, fine, sure. But he never really commits. Paul is the one that really jumps all the way in to everybody in the pool, right? I mean, that's, Paul becomes the representative of what we would call the evangelical Christianity, where everyone is invited in. That's why Acts, I think, is told the way it's told. You start with Peter, you end with Paul. Because the macro message is not about either one of them. The macro message is about the gospel and the way that people in that first generation shifted their understanding representative in the person of Paul. This is the moment, what, we're gonna get to what we call the Jerusalem Council. And the Jerusalem Council is a big moment in the history of the church where they formally decide that you don't have to be, Jesus to, you don't have to be Jewish to follow Jesus. And there are some meaningful impacts of that decision, right? One is you don't have to be circumcised. Men around the Mediterranean rejoiced. <laughs> so there are some significant moments that the council will decide formally that right now Peter is, as you said, germinating, right? Peter's working this out. Peter could have walked in the door and told him about Jesus. He didn't. Peter walked in the door and said, I guess I'm supposed to be here. And then when Cornelius's response was so generous and Peter understood that God was doing something with that person too, then he said, all right, well, let me tell you about Jesus. And as he was speaking, the spirit fell. So I want to get back to that. But any other questions about just the action up to this point? Yes, ma'am. This is the same Peter that denied Christ. He's come a long way, huh? Right. He did get his own vision. So what Madeline's saying, I think, is really important. Peter... I'll speak for myself. For me, Peter is the person I can relate to most and the kind of person I hope to be because Peter is definitely and demonstrably imperfect. He is the rock that Jesus wants to build the church, but then immediately, like the hour that that is challenged— around the fire after Jesus has been arrested, Peter denies, right? And denies three times. So these threes come up over and over again, right? Peter denies three times until the cock crows and he runs away crying. And then you've got this moment where they're, they're hiding in the room, Pentecost happens, and they go out and they begin preaching. And still, 
Peter sees this vision of the animals and says, I really don't think so. That does not sound right. And has to hear it three times before he kind of reluctantly says, okay, then I'll go. And over and over and over again, Peter falls short. And yet God never lets him go. And that's why I want you to put yourself in the position of the Jewish people in Judea in this first century. Because anything we think stands in our way as being good followers of Jesus is nothing like stood in the way of these people. Nothing. You can tell me any sad story you want. Nothing that we have is as difficult to overcome as what these people are overcoming. It does not mean that what we have to overcome is not significant. But that's what I want for us, is to see that we're not alone in our struggle. Every one of us has something hard happening, maybe many hard things happening. We can do it. We can overcome. And we can overcome because God does not let us go. Even when we think God has, we are wrong. God has not. God sticks, sticks with us and hits us over and over and over again and will not let us go. And one of my favorite passages in the Bible is when the women come to the tomb and they see Jesus and he says to them, go tell my disciples and Peter that I have gone ahead of them. Why and Peter? Well, because his, he's the one who denied him. And Jesus makes it explicit. You go tell everyone, and you make sure you tell Peter, I'm going ahead. That's amazing. That moment, and then all of these subsequent moments where Peter is just hit again and again and again by God should be a gift to us because God's hitting us too. No matter where we are, what we've done, what we're going through, how old we are, any phase of life, God does not let us go. All right, now we get to the part that I really like because it's what we don't like. Okay. <laughs> the very end of chapter 10 begs a critical question. Who can be Christian? Who is it that can follow Jesus? And what are we supposed to do about it? There, I do not want to, I cannot underemphasize how the last few verses of this chapter should be the root of your identity as disciples. And we don't do this well. And so I'm going to push on this, and I hope every person is uncomfortable because we should be. So, early followers of Jesus, including Peter, began to pivot in the way they talked about Jesus. I want us to note that as Peter told Cornelius about Jesus, Peter did not tell Cornelius the stuff Jesus said. Peter told Cornelius about Jesus. We, as and mainline Christians in the U.S., make this critical mistake. We love to talk about what Jesus said, but we rarely talk about Jesus. What I mean is, when we face difficult times, or when we unpack and try to answer the question, how should we follow Jesus? What we often do is say, okay, well, Jesus said X, Y, and Z, so we should do those things. The gap that we miss is that we actually need Jesus. And traditions like ours, I think, fall short when all we ask of people is to act like Jesus, but not actually root and define ourselves as Jesus saving us from ourselves. We don't like that stuff. We don't like evangelical sort of Jesus saves me, you know, take the wheel kind of stuff. But we need to acknowledge that it's not good enough 
to just be nice. It's not good enough to just be loving. We're called to something more than that. The starting place matters. So even if our actions look similar, we have to start from the place where our entire identity begins by the humility that we cannot do this our, our, on our own, and that it is Jesus who makes our actions holy and sacred, period. It is not us. And we don't like that because we are strong, able people. And we like to do things ourselves. Jesus is who makes that possible. And that's difficult for some of us to hear. We have seen, too, that as Peter speaks to these Gentiles, the Spirit falls on them. Peter's response is to baptize. So let's see, look at verse 45. After the Spirit falls on Cornelius and his household, Peter says to his traveling companions something very important. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. Then Peter said to them, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And so he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. We have created a theology that puts parameters around who receives the Spirit. That is not bad, but I want us to consider whether those parameters are just good process, or if we really believe those parameters are completely true. I like the process. Baptism's great. We get together and we wear fancy dresses and we do things like we pour water on babies and seal them with oil, and it's beautiful and I love it. We are a ritualistic people. It feels good to have a ritual, right? If you graduate from college, it's fine to not walk, but man, it's great to walk. I mean, we like ritual because it kind of makes it real. But does that mean it has to happen? And what we see in the story is that God's doing stuff, whether we participate or not. God wants our participation. But that does not mean that if we don't do something, that God isn't doing it anyway. Now, how does that actually hit the ground? For Peter and his companions, they are face to face with the idea that whether they approve or not, God has chosen that these people, these non-Jews, can be part of his kingdom too. And so Peter and his companions respond to God, making the circle bigger. Now, they don't try to keep it smaller, but they didn't also make it bigger. God did. And they, in faith, responded. And how did they respond? Not by saying, good for you, and waving goodbye. They brought Cornelius and his house into their tradition. Remember, baptism is rooted in a Jewish idea of being cleaned. You go through ritual cleansing before you can worship. That is, it's a process that for the Jews showed them who was in and who was out. Peter has taken that process and included these Gentiles. I cannot communicate how big this is. Not only is this big for them, but this is big for us. Because in this moment, we are called to be the kind of people who will welcome, forgive, heal, transform every person which is not tolerance. For us, the rubber hits the road. We are called to be inclusive. We are not called to tolerate. 
And in our current environment, in our world, tolerance is lifted up as a very good thing. Tolerance is not good enough. Tolerance is only good as a potential starting point. Inclusion is really what God wants of us. That is what we see Peter do. Peter has tolerated, and then Peter shifts to including these Gentiles in his tradition. I heard it once said that tolerance is inviting people to your party. Inclusion is teaching them how to dance. We as a church are pretty comfortable, I won't say good, but we are comfortable with the invitation. We would say to anyone, you are welcome. But we are less comfortable teaching people how to be included in this community. If they want to do the work to do it, great. But we very infrequently, if ever, actually shepherd someone into our community. And part of that is what we see in any group of any kind anywhere. The more people that come into the group, the more that group might change, and the less that group will be as it was when you were first in it. That's scary. And yet God says that is what his kingdom is all about. And so at the end of this chapter, I want us to receive the challenge that Peter received. Remember, Peter is us. We've seen Peter walk through this and not very confidently and not very smoothly, but he stuck in the process. And I think in the end, it was worth it. For us, we are invited to feel the discomfort and the challenge, but to stick with it. Because God makes our circle bigger than we think it is, always. And we're not called to just be okay with God increasing the circle. We're called to actually be a part of making sure that circle increases for good. And that's, I think, what we need to be doing at St. Michael or in your own churches as disciples of Jesus is not just being okay to invite someone to the party, but to actually take the time out of generous love to show them how to dance. I think our time is up. Leave any questions you have on the cards and we'll get to them next week. Thank you all.